So we are continuing a series that we've been in, it feels like, forever. The crazy thing is the series, the messages in the series, only like, there's only like six, maybe five or six messages, but it certainly have felt longer because we've had so many things happen in between. But this series that we have been in is called Bridging, uh, Bridging the Gap. And it came out of the vision that God's given us to be, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but it's really in the, in the word, bridging the gap, that we'd be willing to stand in the gap, be willing to, pre- to share the gospel with everyone, that we would not hesitate to live a life that's worthy, that shows people that the God I serve loves you no matter where you are, no matter what you've been through, he sees you in your, at your lowest. He sees you at your highest because he cares. And out of that, there's four things that we're focusing on. There's the first two that we've talked about is there's the generational gap in the church where you don't always see a representation of all generations. And sometimes what you see is whatever generation is dominated in a church is how a lot of things in the church goes in terms of how you do worship, how you do the kind of songs you're going to do. Because unfortunately what ends up happening is with sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, you want to make that whatever generation is represented happy. And so you find yourself catering to keep them happy. But we're not called to that. We're called to reach everyone. That's what the Great Commission is, is to go out into all nations to preach the gospel to everyone. And then we also talked about culture, where there can be multiple cultures in terms of where you grew up, how you grew up, represented in the church, but the church culture itself does not change because it's First of all, it has to be centered around Christ. So what that means is we continue to worship God, we continue to praise Him, we continue to pray, we do all these different things, but none of, we, we may change, say, say we do prayer at a specific time in the service, we may change where we moved it to, say, the middle of the service, or we move it to the end of the service. What that, we may be, we change those things around but we don't change that culture of prayer. And it's the same thing for worship. You do different types of music that centers around Christ because it's about worshiping God, not necessarily about our preferences. And let me tell you, we we would be lying to ourselves if we said we didn't have preferences in the type of music that we would like to hear. I know I personally have my own preferences in the type of music that I like to hear, but I had to learn how to put aside those things when it comes to worship. See, I led worship for, for several years, and one of the things I had to learn how to do is to uh, get out of my comfort zone and be willing to do songs that I may not necessarily myself enjoy, but I knew that just because I don't enjoy doing a specific song doesn't mean that God doesn't want to or can't use it to reach somebody. See, what happens when we limit ourselves to the type of music or the style of music that we want to do is we limit 
what God can do. We're putting him in this box that says we just have to do the specific style of music and that's it. And what you find is when you're unwilling to adapt and change, because there's different style of worship music. For me, it's more so do those songs praise God? Are they Focus on Christ because that's what they're supposed to be about. If they're not praising the Father, then we don't need to do those songs. If they're not talking about Jesus and they're not praising the things that he's done, the fact that he's given his life for us, there's no point in doing those songs because then we're just doing those feel-good songs that just makes you feel good for a moment. And then when we go back to our day, we go back to our week, there was just another song. It did really nothing for you except for that moment. Nothing changed. And so today I'm gonna, we're going to be talking about the economic gaps. What that means is there, you know, you, you, we have three different social class, if you think about it. You have the upper, the middle, and the lower class. Now, this message was hard because I kept trying to think of how to approach it. And so when I kept trying to come up with ways to approach it, and it wasn't easy, and, you know, I had to read through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament just to kind of find different examples. And what I did was I looked for ways that God really addressed those things, first starting with the Israelites after they had come out of slavery from Egypt. Now, after they had come out of slavery from in Egypt, they only knew one type of living. Their examples of what life was like was based on what they saw in the Egyptians. The way they were treated, which wasn't always a good, a good, in a positive manner, those were the examples that they had. They had a group that was pretty well made off above them that treated them like they were nothing. And so that was the example that they had when they left Egypt. And so God had to kind of set, first of all, give them the Ten Commandments that tells them how they're supposed to live, but then he also had to tell them different things that they, can, that they do or shouldn't do because one of those things, he, for starting at, uh, in the book of Exodus, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 21 to 25, one of the first, there's a lot more in that chapter than just this, but these are some of the things that I want to share this morning as he spoke to the Israelites that we can learn from. In the book of Leviticus, has a lot of, a lot of things in there, a lot of laws that God gave them. But this one specifically was to remind them of where they were, how they were treated, and how they were not to do this, turn around and do the same thing to others. And it says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, and I'll certainly hear their cry, my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. The first, one of the first things that stuck out to me in that passage is when he tells them, do not mistreat foreigners in your land or oppress them. In other words, just because you had that example 
of how the Egyptians treated you as a foreigner in their land, as the people, as the followers of God who he has chosen to be his representation, don't go and do the same thing to others. Now, they were about to go into a land that God had promised them, and in order to gain that land, they had to fight a lot of wars. Because God didn't want the idols that the people had had there to remain, and he they had seen the way that they treated, really, they weren't living in a way that pleased God, and so that's why he wanted the Israelites to have that land. He told them it would be a land filled with milk and honey. Now, it didn't come without sacrifice, and we know, too, that not everybody that left Egypt made it to the land that God had promised because they didn't fully believe that they could take the land that God had promised them. And then verse 22, he tells them, do not take advantage of widows or the, or the, uh, the fatherless. In other words, of orphans. And when we go on later in the New Testament, we see how they really took on that and continued to do that where they would look after the widows. They would look after the orphans and do all these different things. See, God gave them specific instructions on how to treat each other as well as other people. Because all the laws that God gives them was for them to live differently than what they had seen. In order for them to become a nation, they had to have, they had to have something to follow, and God didn't want them to follow the nation that they had been oppressed by because that is not what he wanted for them. In Leviticus verse nine, chapter 19, verse 15, God tells them, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great but judge your neighbor fairly. If you stop and really think about that, do not pervert justice. What does that actually mean? More often than not, people really, when people, not always when you go to court, do the, right, the people that didn't do the wrong end up winning. Because there's, people always find ways to get around the law. And something that's supposed to be helping people, unfortunately, sometimes through bribery or different means, the wrong people end up accused of things or suffering for things that they had not done. And if you read the book of Leviticus, there's, God goes into great details about what to not, how to not pervert justice. And he set up ways to where if somebody killed somebody, whether it was intentional or not, here, there are things that they had to do. They had to set a city aside where they would send that person and they would investigate what happened. And then once they find out what happened, then they would bring that person before the judge and decide whether that was if they had done right or if they had done wrong. But also the difference, I believe, between today and then is that these judges did not just make these decisions on their own. They would ask God to give them clarity, to give them and show them if this person was innocent and guilty. And more often than not, God would tell them this person is either innocent 
or they are guilty. And then God, he told them to not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. In other words, it doesn't matter if they're wealthy or not. Show them the same level of love, respect, and everything that you do. I don't know about you, but I don't think we do that one very well today. If you look at the way we idolize people who are wealthy, the way we put them in, on pedestals like they've got everything together, we all, sometimes we even try to model our lives after those people when those same people are dealing with broken marriages, dealing with broken homes, or all these different things that they're dealing with because they don't have God in their hearts. But those are the people that our children see as big examples in the limelight. And so they, these are the people that our children end up looking up to because they see the success that they have, but not the hurt that they're going through. And so as parents, we have to be careful to make sure that our kids realize that just because you have success doesn't mean you have it all together. Just because things might look like they're going well for somebody, and, you know, and they, that's what you see in social media, that doesn't mean that things are really going all that great for them. So we've come to a point where we judge people or we look at people based off of their social status and not so much of their characters. Where we follow people because of things that they do or ways that they act because we, we wish we could do certain, some of those things rather than looking at the way, the way they treat other people, the way they treat their families, how they act in different settings that, that we're not used to. Sometimes we treat one group of people better than another, and sometimes people look down on the less fortunate, and sometimes people look down on people that are wealthy. It goes both ways. We're driven by our experiences and by our surrounding, and we all have a desire for better. Whether you grew up in a home where you had to fight for things, or you grew up in a home where everything was great, we all want to do better. We want to do better for our kids because we don't want them to experience some of the things that we experience. And so we do our best to set things up so that they can succeed. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things and wanting to see our kids succeed. What I believe the problem becomes when we become so driven by our desires to do more and, and we lose track of, our, of spending time with our kids, the same ones that we're trying to make things better for, we're not even given the time of day because we're so busy. So then it becomes more about ourselves, really, and us not having dealt with the things that we dealt with in our past and trying to do better instead of actually giving our families the time of day. Because a lot of times what happens is when you spend more time at work, by the time you get home, you're so exhausted, you have nothing left for your family. Your family is a gift that God has given you that you are to invest time in. 
So if you're not setting up an example of how valuable they are to you, how valuable they are to God, what kind of example are you setting? In that same chapter, down again to verse 33, God reminds them to love those neighbors, those foreigners, the same way as they love themselves. And in, in the New Testament, Jesus reminds us of this command to love God and to love others. But he goes further and says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, if we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then to love, to love others, then that means the same love that we show to God, we have to be willing to show to everyone. We have to be willing to put aside the things, different views that we might have of people and show that love to everybody. Now we fast forward to the New Testament as Jesus is walking with the disciples. As Jesus is teaching them and telling them really how they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to act, the things that they're to do and not do. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, is going to be up there. It says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your, father's, your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The point Jesus makes here is very simple. When you do something for others, don't do it for attention. That's not to say, you know, he says you can, do, you can do these things in secret where you're not broadcasting the things that you're doing. But if you're doing them because you want people to see how good of a person you are or how, in this case, how righteous you are and things like that, then he says, well, you've already gotten your reward. People see how righteous you are. People see you get the attention that you wanted from the people around you because they're, see, they're seeing what you're doing. But rather, when you do it for the Father, He is the one that's going to reward you. And as we seek to help others we do it not because we want people to see, man, I'm such a good person, or I have this to, all these things together, but rather we want God's glory to be the thing that shines through in everything that we do. And loving others can look multiple different ways. It can be in the way you treat people. When we treat people with respect, with honor, we do it because we love the Father and respect the Father, not because we want others to see what we're cap the good things that we can do.
And then we go to Luke chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. I'm going to use, there's going to be a lot of scripture today, so you're going to be all over the place. But these are different examples of different groups that people, that God or Jesus spoke to or shared the gospel with or helped in one way or another. And it wasn't always the people that were in the lower parts of their society. And if you look at a lot of the healing that Jesus did, a lot of times it were people that would be considered outcasts, where he would be walking through uh, going from one city to the next, and there would be people who had leprosy. And if you see, if they saw people with leprosy, you couldn't go near them. That's why they had to live outside the city. And so you had to really get as far away as you can, really, even maybe walk to the other side of the street and keep going. But that's not, usually that's not what Jesus did. Instead, he would stop, and he would interact with them, and then he would heal them. And once he healed them, some of them would go and, you know, go about their day. And then uh, there was one that stayed in one instance and praised God for what he had done. The thing we, don't, we can't forget is that those people that had leprosy that had to live outside the city, they were people from all sorts of different areas. Samaria... Judea, all these different people were in that same spot because they had one thing in common, and that was they were outcasts of their cities. But outside there in that area, they were all the same. They were people that needed to be loved. They were people that needed to be seen. And when Jesus showed them that they were seen and loved, and then he went even further and healed them, he showed them that in the kingdom of God, no matter where you are, no matter what you're dealing with, he sees you. But then he also reminded, was showing them that the gospel is for every single person. So in Luke 14, verse 1 through 6, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. So Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now, in order to understand what's going on, first we have to understand how much they really put when it comes to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a big deal. They had things, they, they believe that you're not to work on the Sabbath. Like, you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath except maybe go to the temple for uh, a reading of the Word. But the rest of your days, like, if you're if you lost something or there was a lot of rules that they added onto what God had given them for the Sabbath. And I did a message once where I actually I had watched a video of a Jewish person that actually listed some of those things that were extra things that they had added to the law that God had originally given them. So then they added to what God originally said. So it no longer became about resting 
but more so about really keeping people from doing much of anything. And if you ever take time to rest, you don't, none of us really spend that whole day doing nothing. So to be told that you cannot, you couldn't cook, if they had to make a meal, they had to do it the day before so that they had a full meal prepared before the Sabbath day. So you couldn't cook on the day of, so if you had visitors coming, everybody fends for themselves, I guess. But there were these different things that they added onto that that really made it less of what it was supposed to be. So it became just another thing that they did. And so it says that they, they were constantly watching Jesus to see what he would do. And a lot of the healings that he did, interestingly enough, he did them on the Sabbath. And so he went to this Pharisee, and it says it was a prominent Pharisee. So it was somebody that was well known, that, was, that the, every single person probably in the area knew who he was. Because in their societies, Pharisees were very important because they held the law and a few other things. And so, it says there in front of him, there's somebody suffering. We don't know how long this person had, been, had had this suffering, but we know that Jesus saw that, and he knew that they were watching him, and he asked him a question. And it's a very, question, it's a very simple question. He asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they couldn't give him an answer, not because they didn't have an answer, because they didn't want to give an answer. Because a lot of times they knew the answers to the questions that Jesus was asking, but they knew if they answered it one way, then he would ask them questions like, well, then why don't you do it? Or make them think about what they're saying. So instead, most of the time, they choose not to answer because they were looking for ways to trap Jesus in the things that he was doing or saying. One of the things I find interesting about Jesus healing on the Sabbath is as a day of rest, you don't think about it, but as a, the time of rest is supposed to be a time where you give your body the time to recuperate from a long week. So he was doing these things and showing that God is a God of healing, that God is a God of restoration, that God is a God that can take your brokenness, can take your pain, your suffering, and if you allow him, he will restore you and make you new. When you take time to rest, usually you, be, you feel refreshed, and if you actually rest, you feel refreshed. Now, if you spend your day just all going all over the place doing things, you feel more tired than you do refresh. But Jesus didn't care about all of that he didn't care that the Pharisee that he was going to was somebody that was well-known. Just like he didn't care when he would heal somebody that was he dealing with leprosy. And then we get another example. And this one, I think, gives us really a view of a lot of how we see people. Sometimes we see the things that people have and we characterize them based off of that. 
But the truth of the matter is there's one thing that we all have in common is that we're all sinners. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. In the eyes of God, we're all sinners. And if you don't know Jesus, then you're still walking in sin. So in Luke 19, verse through 10, we, we get this story of Zacchaeus. And, you know, there's even songs that, ki- that the kids have learned over time called Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man he was. Because he was a short person. And, you know, there's people who are very short that may, probably didn't really appreciate that song at the, when he first came out. But it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. One of the, I'm gonna, I just want to stop right there for a second. I found it interesting that his status didn't keep him from wanting to know who Jesus was. He had been hearing about this Jesus. He had been hearing about all the things that Jesus was doing. The last thing that he was thinking was, this Jesus would want to even come to my house. Sometimes that's the, the mindset of people. Why would Jesus want to come to my heart, want to come be a part of my life? After everything I've done, after everything that I've, every mistakes that I've made, why would he want anything to do with me? He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Jesus didn't say, can I come to your house? He looked at him and says, I need to come to your house today. Jesus wants to be in our lives. He wants to be a part of the things that we're doing. He wants to change our hearts. The invitation is always open from Him. The question is, are we willing to accept Him and and accept the invitation of Jesus coming into our house or into our hearts? And when people saw who Jesus had had asked to come to to the house of, they started talking about it, started whispering, He's gone to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is the mandate or the commission that he has given to the church when we look at the Great Commission, to go after the lost. Because that's who he came for. He came to bring salvation to all people. And so while we're growing in our faith, while we're growing in our walk with Jesus, we have the opportunity to share our testimonies, to share our faith with others Sometimes we take those opportunities, sometimes we don't. 
But Jesus shows us that social status means nothing when it comes to his love. While people were talking about the, thing, the fact that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house because he was a tax collector, and at the times, a lot of the tax collectors, collectors would cheat people. But then Jesus looks at this man and says, I want to come to your house today. I want to bring the gospel to your household today. I want to share with you how your life can be changed and transformed if you would accept the gospel of truth. If you would accept the truth of what he had done. See, Jesus died on the cross to be a sacrifice, but also to be the mediator between us and the Father. Because he wants us to have a relationship with the Father. In James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to pull out, just going to read the first four verses. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man come into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and a, mo- and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and says, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? And James goes on to tell us, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. See, when we talk about being rich and poor, we think in terms of money or material gains, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. You can have all the money in the world and not know Christ. You can have very little and yet have such a joy because you know Jesus. You can be rich in faith, and not have all the material possessions in the world. You can have all the possessions in the world and not have a deep relationship with Christ. And so James is reminding us that it doesn't matter who walks in through the doors of a church. For us, it would be through the doors of a church or even in the workplace. It doesn't matter how they come in. It doesn't matter what they're wearing instead of looking at the outward appearance of what they have, think more so in terms of where are they in their relationship with Jesus? Do they know the God that can save, the God that can change their life? Because that's what's more important. See, under the banner of Christ, we become heirs and conquerors and children of the Heavenly Father. So, who is invited to be part of the table? Everyone is invited. There's this song that uh, called Come to the Table, and it's by uh, Sidewalk Prophets, and I love that song because of the, the bridge of that song. Because it reminds us of the different groups of people, rich, 
for all these different groups of people, the broken, the healed. These are all people that Jesus came for. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God sent Jesus for all of us. The bridge is very simple. This is the thief and to the doubter, to the hero, to the coward, the prisoner and the soldier, to the young and to the older, all who hunger, all who thirst, all the last and all the first, all the paupers and the princes, all who fall or fail, you've been forgiven. All who dream and all who suffer, all who love and lost another, all the chain and all the free, all who follow and all who lead. Anyone who's been let down, all the lost you have been found, all who have been labeled right or wrong to everyone who hears this song, to come to, come to the table. Come join the sinners you have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. That is for all of us. Because we didn't all start out our lives with a relationship with Jesus. We had to accept the call and accept the invitation to become a part of his kingdom. But just coming to church is not, that's not all there is to the kingdom of God. We all have a testimony. We all have a story. We all have things that God has brought us through that can help others overcome. All we have to do is be willing to invite others to the table. To invite them to come sit at the feet of Jesus and allow him to transform their lives the way that he's transformed mine and the way that he's transformed your life as well. See, we never stop growing in our faith. We never stop growing in our walk with Jesus. And he says that his, he gives us his mercy, his mate, is new every morning. Every day is a fresh start. Just because you don't get it right today doesn't mean you can't start over again before the day's over. And then you get another chance again to do it the next day. So as we end today, I want to end it with this simple statement. Whether you're watching online, whether it's your first time, whether you have or don't have a relationship with Jesus, to remember that the invitation to come to the table is for all of us. And what you do with that invitation is up to you. You can choose to accept it, or you can choose to reject it. But he's made the invitation. All you have to do is accept it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you would invite us to be a part of your kingdom. That through the death of Jesus, you've given us an opportunity to have a restored and renewed relationship first with you 
but that restoration can carry into the relationship we have with others. Because of our love for you, which drives us to renew or restore the broken relationships that we might have with others. Father, let us be driven by your love for us and your love for others. Help us to be obedient when you speak to us, when you ask us to do something, when you put somebody in our path that needs to know you, God, that we would not hesitate, that we would not allow things like well, I don't know a whole lot of Bible to stop us, but rather we let our testimonies stand on itself for all the good that you've done in our lives and the good that you can do in others. God, I pray for anyone that is searching this morning, anyone that is seeking to know more about you. I pray that you would meet them where they are. God, that they would accept your invitation and allow and accept Jesus to be the Savior, to be Lord of all in their life. And God, for those of us who already have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would help us to live in a way that is pleasing to you. And that then we would allow your spirit to guide our every step. Father, we love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we pray. Amen. Have a